Amen. Cornerstone people, great being with you, worshiping together. If you're in the room, have a seat. If you're at home, you can have a seat too. Probably already seated. We're going to read some scripture, pray, and then get right into the sermon. So uh, this is taken from Ephesians chapter 1. It's verse 16 down through 23, which is actually the end of the chapter. Yes, Lord willing, today we come to the end of the chapter, end of chapter 1. Then we'll start a whole new series called Chapter 2. That's where we're headed. So let me read some scripture for you and you follow your copy of the Bible, Ephesians 1, 16 through 23. <clears throat> Excuse me, the Apostle Paul writes, and this is God's word. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that we are blessed to assemble ourselves, to worship you, and now to read this portion of your word. We pray that it will come to us in Holy Spirit power. That it will give light to our souls. We pray that in some, it will draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ, where they'll find life everlasting in the forgiveness of sins. And in believers, Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with love and adoration toward you because of what we're going to see in this text. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So in this prayer, it's 168 words, by the way. In this prayer of 168 words, Paul's praying for them that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowing him. And he's praying for them that they, already having the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they may know, here and then here are the things he wants them to know. Let me put it up. Three things Paul wants us to know. The hope of our calling. We looked at that last week. Then the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We're looking at that today. And finally, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Also that today Lord willing, and that will bring us to the end of the chapter. So let's go to what's number two on the slide you're seeing. Let's talk about the riches of his glorious inheritance 
in the saints. Here's the verse, Ephesians 1.18b. He prays that we would know, this is a little repetitive, sorry. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So here's something Paul wants you to know. He believes it will help you if you understand this. What are the riches of his, God's, glorious inheritance in the saints? So let's pick it apart a little bit. First, I want you to notice the word riches. There are riches here. Paul likes the word riches. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, he uses it five times. Riches, 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 riches. Only this time is rather unique because this time it's the riches that God possesses. It's the riches of his glorious inheritance. Notice the word glorious. That's the plain old garden variety Greek word doxa. It means glory. It means something that shines in splendor. Something giving off amazing light. So there are glorious riches. And they are the riches of his glorious inheritance. God, in our text, God is going to receive an inheritance. Back in verse 14, earlier in the passage, we receive an inheritance for which we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our inheritance. We get it at the last day. But in this verse, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about something we receive. We're talking about something God receives. It is the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And so what are the riches? Well, it's us. The riches are the saints. The inheritance is in the saints. So what this is saying is we have an inheritance. It's going to be glory, a new heavens and a new earth, a resurrected body, seeing him whom we love. We have an inheritance. We have a down payment now. We get the whole thing then. God also has an inheritance. He has a people for his possession now. He has a people for his praise. He has a people of his name now. But then he gets us completely. Then he gets us glorified. So it's that that Paul is talking about. And the inheritance that God receives is us. It's blood-bought, Christ-loving, lamb-loving believers. We are seen here as riches, and God inherits us at the last day. Here's how one commentator put it, and I looked at a bunch of them, and I liked this sentence. In us, God himself gains a revenue of glory. Let me read that again. In us, God himself gains a revenue, an income stream, if you will, of glory. Right now, we glorify the Father. He gets a town payment variety of glory. Then we will really glorify the Father. A glorified church will glorify the Father for his grace and his mercy, for Christ our Lamb, forever and ever and ever and ever, an ever-flowing revenue of inheritance, a revenue of glory. Are you getting it? All right, to open up some more light for us, the same thing peeks out at us again in chapter 3 in another prayer of Paul, verse 21, and he prays, to him be glory in the church. 
All right, what's all this for? What's this whole thing about? It's so that God may receive glory in the church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What's going to be going on forever and ever? God is going to be glorified in the church forever and ever and ever. That's what's going on here. Another wrote, the glorified church glorifies God, and the eternal wealth of that glory is God's inheritance. Interesting, huh? We get another glimpse of this in Ephesians 5, where we read about the church, the bride of Christ. Notice the terminology Paul chooses. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, now a purpose clause, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, now another purpose clause, why did he do all this? So that he might present the church to himself, a glorified church. Our version, the ESV, has it in splendor. That's lame. It's the same word, doxa. It's glory. Stick with glory that he might present us to himself a glorified church. This is what this is all about. This is what's going on here on the planet. This is what's happening in all of time. This is what eternity is here for. He's presenting to himself a glorified church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That is what God gets out of this. That's the revenue that streams to God for all eternity. That's what's in this, if you will, for him. A glorified church that glorifies him. We get another peak of this in the book of Revelation near the very end, Revelation chapter 21. And I'll remind you, this is apocryphal genre. This is not one-to-one correspondence with reality. John sees things that are apocryphal they represent other things. Um, it's like he's having a dream while he's awake. And you know how in dreams you see one thing and then it turns into another thing and then it represents something else and so on. That's what's happening here, but it's with God's truth. And so we read Revelation 21.9, then one of the seven angels spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride. Now, class, who's the bride? Yes, yes. One of you just back there just raised her hand like, I am the bride. Yes. Well, we collectively, yes, we are. So come, I will show you the bride, just to make sure you know who that is, the wife of the lamb. Now, lambs don't have wives, but in the book of Revelation, Jesus is mostly the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, a sacrificial victim, a sacrificial animal. But the lamb has a wife. Who's the wife? The church of Jesus Christ. So he's going to show us the church. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me huh, the holy city Jerusalem. That's the church. That's the bride. That's the wife of the lamb. Coming down out of heaven from God. Now notice what she looks like. Having the glory of God. Its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And I looked it up because I didn't know. Jaspers aren't clear. But it's apocalyptic. He sees jasper, and then all of a sudden it's clear. Crystal clear. That is the church. The church is portrayed as 
having the glory of God with a radiance like a most rare jewel. God has a jewelry collection. It's amazing jewelry. Every believer is part of what's in his jewelry box. And it's open, shining his glory for all eternity. That's God's inheritance. So this is what Paul wants us to see with our enlightened, redeemed eyes, the riches of his glory. And now I want to take a few minutes and just ponder and discuss the question with you. Why might this be in here? Like, what is this supposed to do for me? Like, why does it matter that I would know this? And Paul doesn't tell us, so I'm imagining, all right? So be patient with me. But I think, number one, it's giving us, here's a slide for that, it's giving us a very important piece of the big story. What do I mean by that? Well, what is the big story? Creation, the fall, redemption, last day, glory. There's the big picture, right? Those are the major stopping points in the story of heaven and earth. And what Paul is contributing to that story here is he's telling us why God did all this. Why did God create anything? Why did he allow a fall? Why did he send the lamb to be our redeemer? Why is there a judgment day? Why is there heaven and hell? Why is there glory in heaven forever and ever? What's it all about? What's the meta narrative? What's the big story? And Paul is contributing to our understanding of that, and he's telling us, here's what's going on. God is gaining for himself a stream of revenue for all eternity of saints who love the lamb and glorify their father in heaven. Redeemed people who understand his mercy, never understand that without a fall and redemption. His grace, never understand those without a fall and redemption. His love, never know the depths of those without a fall and and redemption. And God is sharing his glorious attributes and the jewels reflect back his light as they behold who he is. So this is supposed to help us get the big picture. What's going on here? Don't forget this. Live in light of this. Like some of you, get a more philosophical bent, would you? Like let this rock you a little bit. Oh, so that's what's going on. I lost track there for a minute. Thought it was about making sandwiches for my kids. No, this is the story. This is why anything is. This is why anything happens. And here's another way I think this might be intended to help us It helps us to appreciate the church, to appreciate the church. We need help with that because right now, the church looks just about anything but splendid. Right now, the church seems anything but richly glorious. Would you agree? In fact, it can seem small, weak, increasingly increasingly marginalized, beleaguered, embattled. You might be interested to know that the good and capable people at Pew Research just released a new batch of research about the state of religion in America, and they found bad news. Are you surprised? Bad news. They said around two-thirds of U.S. adults describe themselves as Christian. Well, you say, that sounds pretty good. I didn't think it would be that high. Yeah, but here's the bad news. That's That's down 12 percentage points in the past 20 years. That's a lot of points. That's like way down. That's rapid decline. By the way, pause. Let me just say, 
I don't know, this is me, this is not Pew. But I'm, I'm wondering, what does it really reflect? Maybe all it reflects is that given the cultural climate and the increasing pressures on Christians and the church and the faith, maybe more and more nominal Christians have removed themselves from the ranks, and what we're left, is, we're left with is the true believers. Maybe it's a purifying of the church. Maybe it's a purging of the church. Maybe it's a strengthening of the church. So don't let those numbers worry you. It could be that. could be. But let's imagine it's the worst. The numbers are bad. And the church compared to SpaceX, compared to Tesla, compared to Apple, compared to Amazon, compared to all the sexy companies, the church can look so pathetic. And we haven't even gotten to talking about the, then there's the people in the church. What a bunch. Spots and wrinkles. In Ephesians 5, Jesus, as the great launderer, is ironing out the wrinkles and bleaching the spots. I have another name for our church, Spots and Wrinkles Community Church. That's us. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul confirms that we are not very impressive. He describes us. Here's who we are. Not many wise, according to worldly standards. Not many powerful not many of noble birth, but God has chosen the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised. And you're sitting there saying, yeah, that's what most of them are. And God has chosen the things that are not, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. That's us. A ragtag assemblage of ignoble people, if there ever was one. And I'll just tell you the truth, I don't struggle with this because I'm not a gloomy person, I'm a happy person. It's just no credit to me, it's how I'm made. But there are pastors who struggle with this on a dreary, rainy, gray Monday morning. If they're not careful, they can get jaded about the church and the whole thing can begin to appear downright pathetic. Like, what do we do on Sunday? We gather and we sing. And most of you shouldn't. You're a little slow to the draw. Somebody behind you is mooing like a cow. You can't pay any attention to the song. And the sermon drones on and on. The pastor says, and 16thly, And when we've done everything we do, we haven't launched anything into space. And it hasn't affected the stock market at all. That's the church now. But wait. Wait till the last day. SpaceX won't be there. Tesla won't be there. The Dow Jones averages won't be there. The church of Jesus Christ will be there in splendor, in glory, and will be God's richly glorious inheritance. Let me switch metaphors for a moment. This one's not Bible, but you'll get the idea. Someone has said 
that we will be trophies of God's grace. Do you have a trophy? You got it when you were like seven. You were in a thing where everybody got a trophy, so there were no losers and we're all winners. You have 12 of them. You've got them displayed, lit up in your dining room. There's my trophies. God has trophies. And his people will be his trophy room and, and lit up with his glory forever and ever and ever. That's the church you are part of. The church, ha, get this, compared to SpaceX, the church that is launching glorified Jesus-loving saints into heaven. Take that, Elon. So this helps us to value the church, to keep the church in perspective. The church of Jesus Christ, it has been said, the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. It's the hope of the world. The church of Jesus Christ is the most happening thing on the planet. But you need enlightened eyes to see that. And Paul is praying that now that your eyes are open, you would see that that you would understand you're not just part of some pathetic, poor, little, shrinking thing. No, you're part of the glorious riches of the inheritance that God will receive as his revenue of glory throughout eternity. It helps you to value the church. So let's review. What are the three things Paul wants us to know with our opened eyes? One, the hope of our calling. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now three, he also wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his, God's power toward us. Let's read that, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Let's pick apart the terms a little bit. He says there's immeasurable greatness. Immeasurable means, well, you can't measure it. There's not a yardstick big enough. If you drive from one end of it to the other, your odometer will break, and there's still a long way to drive. You can't measure it. It's a lot. The immeasurable what? Greatness. Cool Greek word. Megathos. That could be the title of the next Avengers. Megathos. That'd be a great name for a Christian metal band. Megathos. The immeasurable greatness, the megathos. Of his what? His power, dunamis, the ability or capacity to work. And what is it all? And it's all toward us. So when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and become a blood-bought child of God, now God's power turns, and it's toward you. It's now for you. It's now working in you. It's now available to you. You are his inheritance, and he works in you with power. This resurfaces in Ephesians 3.20. I don't have a slide for this. Just listen. Now, Paul prays again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. He wants us to know there's the power of God. There's Holy Spirit power working in the people of God. 
It's toward us. How great is it? Well, he heaps up terms and terms and terms to impress upon us the greatness of that power. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 19b through 20. How great is it? Well, here's the standard. It is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God the Father raised God the Son from the dead. Was that an act of power? Did that take any power to be able to, can you raise anybody from the dead? No, but the Father raised the Son from the dead. And he's saying that kind of resurrection power, it's the same God, same power, is now toward you, you who are a believer. And then he goes on to say, uh, Ephesians 1, 20b to 21. Sorry for all the Bs and stuff. Also, this power that seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What kind of power is toward you? The kind of power that put Jesus Christ over everybody. Seated at the right hand of God, the highest throne in the universe. And not only that, but it's far above any rule and authority and power and dominion. What does that mean? Take any nation, take any world leader, take Rome in their day. Who would it be in our day? Who are the superpowers? Number one is USA. Number two is China, right? Number three is Russia. You got it. Those are the superpowers. And what are the names that are above every name? Well, there's Joseph Biden. There's Xi Jinping. And there's Vladimir Putin. I had to read all those, make sure I got them right, especially the Jinping one. These are the current superpowers and their leaders, the names that are named in our day. God's power is so great, greater than the United States' power, greater than Russia's power, greater than China's power. God's power is so great, he sat Christ way above all of those. And that's the power of God that is now toward you, and Paul wants you to know this. You're not just some pathetic little weak while you are weak, but it's the power of God in you. It's it's toward you. And to go on Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things, all things, not just rules, not just authorities, not just governments and their leaders, but he put all things under his feet. That's the power of God that is toward you, the power that put everything, everything under Christ's feet the very fabric of the universe, all the power that is in the soul, not the solar system, in the universe. It's all under Christ's feet. Talking of power, I don't know if you read the story. China just invested a trillion dollars in creating what some are calling an artificial sun. It's a fusion reactor. They want those because it's pretty much limitless very clean energy, and if we can just get better at it, we can use it forever and ever and ever. So they just built a $1 trillion artificial sun fusion reactor, and it just created quite a record. It reached 126 million degrees, five times hotter than the sun, and it sustained that for, are you ready? 17 minutes. All right, that's pretty cool. God made a universe full of 200 billion trillion suns out of nothing, and they've been burning for all of time. 
And the power of God that put all of that under Christ's feet, that is the power of God that is toward you. And then there's a little more, but before we get to this last part, I just want to warn you, be careful. This is so profound. It's so deep. You might hurt yourself. This is the kind of thing that you need to memorize and then take a month off work and just lie under your bed, maybe in a straitjacket so you don't hurt yourself, and just meditate. And every now and then, a little light will go, and then disappear again. You'll just start to get a little bit of this. So here we go. This is a zinger. Ephesians 1, B through 23. And understanding how the power of God is toward us. And the Father gave him that one who is now described as head over all things. He took him and gave him to the church. So the United States has Joe Biden and Russia has Vladimir Putin and the Chinese have Jinping. We have Jesus Christ. He's given to the church. And then the church is further described in amazing terms. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all, maybe things, in all, maybe ways. The church. We're back to the church. God's inheritance. The church is the fullness of him who fills all things. So here's the best sentence I found on that one to be brief. God's fullness is filling Christ, and Christ is filling his church. Are, are you blinking? Did like any little dim lights? Just, I almost thought I saw something there. It disappeared. It's really profound. So Paul's praying now that you're alive in Christ, now that your spiritual eyes are open, now that you've got Holy Spirit illumination so that you can know, so you have readiness, so you can learn, here's what I want you to know, and this is the third thing. I want you to understand you're not just down here doing this alone. There's, there's the power of God that did all of that with Christ in the universe, and that's according, that's toward you now. All right, so where does that intersect with my life? What's that really do for me? So I wanted to know that. So here's some verses, here's some other scriptures that will help us know what does that mean to me, the ordinary believer? Where does that touch my life? Here's number one that I'll suggest to you. It means that God's power keeps you. That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. He keeps you believing in Christ. He keeps you repenting of your sins. He keeps you following Jesus Christ. It's God's power. It's not you. It's God's power that's keeping you. Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, 5. We who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are kept by the power of God. So this, this great power of God that is toward me, what does it do? Well, it keeps you. That's pretty good. Is there any other manifestation of God's power you'd rather have? Like, well, if it could make me rich, could it do that? No, it keeps you. It keeps you in God's hand. It keeps you believing on the Lord Jesus. It keeps you repenting of your sins. It infuses your soul with fresh grace to keep you following and believing. 
so you persevere. That's God's power. I think that alone might be enough. I could just stop right there. I can't think of any other way. I'd rather experience God's power. That one keeps me in grace. That one keeps me in Christ. That one keeps me for eternity. And you've got it in Christ. But here's a second thing God's power does for us. God's power also changes you. That's the doctrine of sanctification. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. God's power changes you. It enables you to stand against devilish schemes, against the plotting, against the machinations of a busy devil who never slumbers. He's always at his plow trying to sow tares into the church of Christ, trying to turn you into a tear and separate you from Christ. But Paul says, in Christ, you can stand against all the schemes of the devil by the power of God. There you are with fiery darts whizzing past your head. Another fiery dart. Devil's just shooting them at you and shooting them at you. Temptations, fiery darts. How am I going to stand? How am I going to make it till I'm like 95 and stop breathing? The power of God will enable you to stand. This means you can change. There's certainly enough power to make you a better husband. Certainly enough power to make you a better wife, to make you all better parents, to make you better kids. There's enough power here to change lives, to deal with that anger, to break those bad habits, to rein in that acerbic, I like that word, tongue, biting, nasty. God's power changes you. Here's another thing God's power does. This is a good one. God's power upholds you in affliction, in affliction. Look at 2 Corinthians 4 with me, verses 7 to 10. Paul says, but we have this treasure, the gospel, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. You are the jar of clay. It doesn't mean you have it in a jar of clay on your mantle. You're the jar of clay. You're a clay pot, broken, cracked, fragile, weak, We have the glory of God in this clay pot, this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So what happens in real life? The power doesn't mean, now I won't ever be afflicted anymore. No, here's what the power means. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The power of God upholds you in affliction. Thank God, huh? Have any of you, I should ask the other, has anybody not experienced that? Like, how did you get through that? Only the Lord got me through that one, brother. That's right. The power of God upholds you. And the next thing, the next way this power of God comes to us is God's power is also sufficient. What do I mean by that? It gives you everything you need to be able to follow Christ. 
Now, it doesn't tell you how to do calculus. It doesn't tell you how to make a plow, but it does tell you everything you need to follow Jesus Christ. Peter writes about this, 2 Peter 1.3, and he says, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not all things. Doesn't tell you how to be a farmer. Doesn't how to tell you how to make a car. But everything that pertains to life and godliness, his power has given us through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. God's power is sufficient. You can't say, well, I really can't be a very good Christian because I don't have X. No, you have everything you need. God's power is sufficient for you. So Paul prays these three things, and the third one we just looked at, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Now, I have some random verses here about God's power that I wanted to share if time permits, and time permits. So here they are. Philippians 3.10, Paul prays that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. In Colossians 1.11, Paul tells us what he wants believers to be like. Here's what he wants, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance Keep on believing, keep on following, keep on enduring for all endurance and patience with joy. Colossians 1.29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the same Paul who elsewhere, one of my favorite verses about Paul. He says, he talks about Peter and the other apostles, and then he says, but I worked harder than them all. I really like that. And finally, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The Holy Spirit in you gives you spirit-wrought power. So let's summarize. Here's what Paul wants us to know. Last slide, please, slide person. Paul wants us to know the hope of our calling. That was last week. He wants us to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. That's today. And he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. That was also today. So there you have it, 169 words, Paul's great prayer for the people of God. It is all spirit-inspired goodness. Now let me just tell you, and I hope you'll be interested to know, that while preaching through Ephesians, three of you have told me that you are memorizing the chapter as we go. I covered a lot today. You better work hard to catch up there. Three of you have told me you've been memorizing it. Maybe more actually are. Bless you. It should fill you with love and wonder toward Jesus Christ. So amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your holy word. And now that we have looked at it, we pray again. May it lodge itself in our hearts. And may we know more of the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints 
And may we understand with spiritually opened eyes, may we comprehend, Father, your divine power, which is now toward us in Christ. Father, there are certainly people in this room right now who are struggling with life. May they know, may they experience, may they, may they realize your power in their lives. For we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.